Let me invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Judges, chapter 2, as we continue our survey of the Old Testament. I was reminded this morning as I was thinking about how quickly we are moving through this uh, story that Carolyn tells from time to time about a vacation her family took when they, she was in high school. Uh, they were out taking a westward trip, drove all the way out to the coast in California and then back. Her father, being a very efficient man, would stop at certain places and then pack up and go. If I recall, they spent about 10 minutes at the Grand Canyon. He said, there it is. Look, let's go. I mean, it wasn't going to change as far as he was concerned. So once you saw it, you'd seen it. And so it should be an image that would stick with you. And then you just pack up and move on. I think some of that may be where you may be feeling if you've been with us through this series because we're studying the Old Testament. Each week I say our survey of the Old Testament, and yet I say take a peek, let's move on. But I do hope that embedded in your mind and in your heart is the beauty of the gospel that has been seen from the beginning and the end, end, and that that stays with you even if we haven't camped out anywhere as we've uh, engaged in this study. This morning we come to the book of Judges. As we continue and as we start drawing towards the conclusion of this, we have a few weeks left, but, uh, but we are more than the midway point of our, our survey here. And uh, we will read beginning in verse 6 through the end of the chapter. Before we come to the Word, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do come and we give you thanks for the Word that you have recorded and revealed to us so that we are not left wondering about you, about what you expect of us, and even more, how you have demonstrated your love for us in so many and so many amazing ways. Father, as we come to this study this morning, I pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts, that you would instruct us and teach us what it means to be your people, and how we may rest in you, trust you, and be shaped by you. Father, be at work even now as we listen for your voice in this word, in our time of study, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Judges chapter 2, verse 6. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in timnath Harris, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroths. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to the plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. 
Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned, and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges, uh, judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who, uh, who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he said, because this people has transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. May the Lord bless us and give us understanding from his holy word. Early last summer, I experienced one of the more humbling and embarrassing moments of my life. I struck out in slow-pitch softball. This was not one of those, it was a questionable call and I chose not to swing. This was a swing, I had it and swung and just whiffed. There before not only people in the stands, the other team, and others that are on my team, but worse of all, in the presence of two young sons, to that point, I was still better at softball then. It led to my retirement. I know some people can be mature enough to overcome it, but I just, and move on, but I just decided I may be one of those guys who just stayed in the game too long, hang it up. Now, I share that not just to dissuade anybody from inviting me to play on their softball team. That was an experience that was new for me. Maybe it would never happen again, but we're not going to take that risk. I share that because in many ways, Israel seems to embody that. They were, they were missing the ball. They were whiffing at this point in time. They had just taken their eye off the ball. Rather than having the same excuse I had with presbyopia and just old eyes and no longer could see the ball as well as perhaps I used to, they just weren't looking at all. They had taken their eyes off the ball, and they were in serious serious trouble, and as a result of their trouble and serious anguish. Joshua had led them into the land as God had promised, the land that God promised to them and God had provided for them. And Joshua and all of the generation with him had now died, according to verses 9 and 10. And after them, a new generation had, ra been, had raised up, and in verse 10 tells us some very important information about this generation. It says, and there were, arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And consequently, as we see, these are a people who just did as they pleased. 
Throughout the book of Judges, you read a common refrain that says, everybody did what was right in their own eyes. They embraced a very libertarian mindset, which basically is, I, I want to do what I want, and as long as it doesn't hurt you, and it's none of your business. I'm free to do whatever I think is right, whatever feels good, whatever brings me the sense of happiness. That's the way they live their life. Now, part of me says, how could something like this have happened? I mean, one generation that was considered faithful. Now, we also know their history, and we realize that these were not really great stalwarts of, of exemplary faith. They had their own issues, to, to put it mildly, as you see through the book of Joshua, and God continually was correcting them, and they were wandering, and they were not, they were not models of faith, but interesting enough, as they're recorded here in the book of Judges, God declares them to be a faithful generation. And they've passed whatever warts and flaws they may have had. They have passed. And the very next generation that rises up knows nothing about God, knows nothing about what God has done. That's a stunning and amazing thing for me. How does it happen that one generation knows and the very next generation knows nothing? And I had to realize that we are living in a time where that very thing is happening before our eyes. I noticed some time ago that we see uh, around us a, a significant change in generations. A friend of mine, a friend of some of yours, uh, I, had, I read an interview with uh, him uh, on uh, this past week. Paul Miller was being interviewed on another subject, but one of the things that he, he indicated is he was talking about the change in, the, in our culture and in the spirituality. He said, growing up in an OPC, Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, where Paul's father was a pastor and seminary professor, he said every once in a while you would hear of a, a black sheep somebody who was a child of a church leader or faithful, godly people who would wander from their faith and, and no longer embrace the faith of their fathers. But it was a relatively rare occurrence. That just didn't happen very often. But Paul says now it's not uncommon to hear of uh, all, all over of, of a family. that may, perhaps if they have three children, you have one who has not abandoned the faith, but they have really nothing to do with church. Another one who is passionately pursuing uh, their faith and is actively engaged in church and still the third child who was not only walked away from the church and the faith but they are probably and quite possibly ho hostile to that faith same family one generation removed from people who are committed and faithful three children raised in the same circumstance and it's not uncommon to see them all going in different ways as i thought about what i've noticed over the past uh, several years and thinking about occurrences in not only churches that I have had the opportunity to serve, but hearing of things going on in other churches, what Paul indicates is, is a very real phenomenon. One thing that I've noticed is, for, uh, for just for lack of a better illustration, we have a, a generation still among us that was faithful, at least in the same sense that Israel was being labeled faithful here, the, the generation that had passed away. In other words, there were people that were committed to their faith, they were committed to their church, certainly not flawless and, and, and beyond reproach, but as a whole, we have a, known as the builder generation, which was marked by a commitment to faith and, and, to, and to walking in godliness. And then the generation that came beyond them, which I'm a part of the tail end of that, the, the boomer generation, has more of a, a nominal faith. There's a commitment and sometimes even a zeal and a passion for certain aspects of the Christian faith, maybe the mission, but it's not anything that really, not enough faith that really bothers anyone. It's enough to believe, but it doesn't get in the way of living their life. If there's some event, the Masters, Super Bowl, whatever, 
we take care of life. When we don't have anything better to do, we go to church. We commit to being part of the body of Christ. Also wrapped up into that whole generation was this whole mindset uh, that really cultivated the consumeristic mindset of the church, that the church exists, much like Walmart, to serve you. Whatever you want, you come and you pick, you get what you can from one place. The whole idea of a covenantal relationship engaged in a church, that's just gone. That was just blown out of the way. But the baby boomers as a whole were still going to church, not as committed as their parents, but still going to church. And now another generation is raised up. And at least from a statistical standpoint, they are just walking away from the church. Where they may have grown up going to church week after week after week, but by the time they get to college, they are walking away from the church in droves. People are scratching their heads and wondering why, and, and there are all sorts of possibilities. I suspect that one of the issues is because they have never really been taught the faith. They've been taught to be good. They've been taught certain values. But they've never been taught the message of the gospel, which actually is what binds us and motivates us and keeps us in covenant. Now, whether that's the same issue that took place in Israel or not, whether you had a generation of people who were deemed faithful, certainly flawed, but faithful nevertheless, and they just assumed that their children would just walk in their ways and never bother to actually train, teach, and disciple their children. I'm not sure how they got there, but what God is recording here is a generation that did not know him and did not know the things that he had done. And consequently, the people did as they saw fit. Whatever it was that seemed good in their eyes, that's what they would do. In many real senses, we see this uh, text telling us that these people, well, circumstances dictated their behavior. When they had a judge and times were good, they would follow God. When the judge died, they were left to their own devices. They just did as they pleased. Things got bad, and they walked away from God. We also see this cycle, an intro to the entire book that happens throughout this book, because this is a cycle that is repeated over and over and over throughout this book, is the people would wander from God into wickedness, they would experience the consequences of their decisions and then fall into oppression and experience hardship and pain. They would cry out to God who would have pity on them and who would raise up a judge to deliver them, provide for them, and bless them. And having yet been restored again, when that judge died, the people would just wander away again. Whether they knew what God had done for Israel in the past and delivering them out of Egypt, you would think that at the very least they would realize God has delivered me time and time again when I've cried out. But in the hardness of hearts, they became the center of their own world and their circumstances dictated their behavior. Whether or not they followed God depended entirely upon their circumstances. And this is directly counter to the purpose that God had for his people. God had called a people, and he put them in the land for a specific purpose. They were to be his people, his chosen people. They were to reflect his goodness to them. They were to reflect his values so that the nations would be drawn to them and realize that the gods that they were pursuing were nothing. But the God of Israel, who was gracious and powerful, would be an attraction. And they would come, repent of their past, believe in the God, who is the God of gods. God's intention of putting these people in this land, God's intention for his people, period, is that his people are to be influencers. 
God's people are to be shapers of culture, not those shaped by culture. Now, the scripture is clear, and, and this text is also clear. There's any number of, of influences, shaping uh, pressures that, that are involved in any culture. And just like the sea might cause erosion and sh- reshape a, a landmass, or gravity begins to take effect on all sorts of things, and, and things change their shape, there are very real social and, and uh, pressures that shape a people, and they're, they're very present here that with God's people. But God said, even though those things are very real, what I expect, what I am enabling you to do, and what I'm calling you to do is that you will not only stand firm against those kinds of pressures, you'll actually push back, and rather than being shaped by the culture, you will be shaper of the cultures around you, and then ultimately the shapers of the entire world. The essence of God's promise would seem to indicate this. When God called the people and said, I will be in the midst of you, I will be with you, my glory will always be with you, one of the aspects one of the, of the definition of glory is weightiness or heaviness. In other words, when God's glory is, indicates to us that is no lightweight, there's no light subject, it is important, it is a heavy, substantive matter. God matters. God's presence in the midst of the people and that weightiness, that heaviness, just like any heavy thing, any heavy object will create some sort of an impact. God's weight, God's magnitude should shape his people in such a way that it, shape, that it counters the pressures of the cultures around them and actually enables them to redirect everything that they come in contact with. The idea is somewhat like this. If you were to throw a large object into a body of water, it has an effect. You can't throw a large object into the water without having the ripple effect going off in all different directions. A couple of weeks ago, Carolyn and I were eating at the cafe uh, at the old Jamestown along the river. We were sitting there, and we noticed um, as the, the river, obviously a very large and a, a strong and powerful river, uh, was, was flowing by, and the beauty of that, and the ferries would come and go. We notice as the ferry would pass out of sight, soon thereafter, something interesting happened. Is that while this river all was flowing south, all of a sudden you would find the wake of the ferry that would flow in two different directions, causing waves to crash on the seawall right there below us. It wasn't the normal course of this powerful flowing river, but it was the weight of the ferry that was in that river that was redirecting the flow of that river, causing it to have an impact of its own. God has said, look, you are my people, and my glory is in the midst of you, and my weight, my glory, the, my weight, even though there are real pressures that are flowing the way they're flowing, if you are my people and I am in your midst, my presence should have such an effect on you that it will not only withstand the pressures of the culture, it will redirect things, and you will be an influence even in the midst of things that could erode your strength. That's the purpose that God had for Israel that they were neglecting, and yet it's not only the purpose that God had for Israel. It's the purpose that God has for his people, period. Because Jesus reminded us, you are a city on a hill. You are salt of the earth. You are a light to the world. All of these are influences. All of these things are change agents. All of these things are to, to shape and to change. It's, it's part of the purpose. Jesus, in bringing these images to, to mind, is reminding us of God's purpose from the very beginning for calling of his people, that they were to be agents of God's influence ultimately of God's grace because bringing all things to the, under the influence of God 
so that he may bless those that he's calling to himself. The question for us this morning is this. What will help us in following in the footsteps of this generation of Israel? What will make us a people of influence? Those who are shaping our world and our culture rather than continually and increasingly being shaped by it. We know it's a need. Statistics tell us that 80% of all churches in the United States are either in stagnant or in decline. 3,500 churches close their doors every single year. Now the news is not all bad. God is still at work in very clearly in powerful and amazing ways and we really need to hitch our affections to what God is doing and be amazed uh, even if it's not necessarily directly impacting us. But around the world, God is, is doing tremendous, tremendous things. In a couple of countries, South Korea, some parts of Africa, God is at work in amazing ways where 100 years ago where less than 5% of the population had any contact with the gospel, any embracing of the gospel. The population now that are professing, following Christ, even at risk of possible harm to themselves, is a majority, over 50%, pushing 60% in, in some cases, with projections over the next 20 years that these cultures, these countries that once had no idea or very little idea of the gospel, within 20 years will be 80% faithful followers of Jesus Christ that are sending missionaries out throughout the world and are blessing the people who are around them. God is powerfully at work, and we should rejoice, even though we're seeing a decline in our own country. In China... We tend to think of the bastion of evil, and certainly there's a lot of that. I don't know if you are aware or not, but there are more evangelical Christians in China than there are professing Christians in the United States. Who would have thought that? And the missionaries were kicked out, locked up, or killed during World War II. But when the doors were opened back up and we saw apparently God can do things without us, And we rejoice. Just as a side note, to um, continue to pray uh, for the work and the gospel to go in China. Uh, one of our own, uh, Steve Louie, will be speaking in China in a couple of weeks. And we'll have opportunity to even be in, in worshiping in a church. Actually, he's planning to worship in a church uh, that was planted by Carolyn's great-great-grandfather. God is doing amazing things throughout the world, so it's not that God has stopped and that God is not doing anything, but the fact is we know that we have lost our voice, we have lost our influence in this culture. And this is where God has planted us. And so the question that we need to ask is what is it that we must do? What is it we must understand in order to reverse the trends that are very obvious to everybody? Simply speaking is we need to put our eye on the ball. Three things I take from this passage, both by uh, what God has said and, and by the neglect of Israel. The first thing I would simply say is this, is we need to be a people who pursue personal holiness. I mean, that was one of the problems uh, there, is these were people that whatever they heard, they just did what they thought was right. But we need to realize that the standard of holiness is not what we think, but what God has said. That's, that's vital, and it's important that we, first and foremost, who are followers of Christ, choose to be pursuing growth in holiness and renewal in our own lives so that we are embodying the very thing that we are supposed to be proclaiming. 
we can't establish a kingdom that we are not a part of. When the English landed down the street at Jamestown, they didn't come upon the shore and plant a French flag. You can only reproduce what you are. And if we are a people who say, well, we've got the message and we want the world to change, but we are disobedient to what they're called to do in any aspect whatsoever, we need to be the first ones to be repenting. God says very clearly, if my people who are called by my name, that's the church, folks, if we will turn from our wicked ways, then I will hear their prayers and I will have mercy and heal their land. And so for the first call, it's for you and for me who are part of the church of Christ to ask, are we really following and obedient to what Christ is calling in all of our lives? Or are we enough shaped by the cultural pressures from before that we're comfortable, we're high on the curve, and we think we're all right? Peter tells us that we are to grow in grace, in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's an interesting phrase. He's writing to believers. And he's saying, okay, you have already been graced. You have been blessed. But apparently the job is not done. You're to grow in that grace. There's more for us to appropriate. We have a need to grow. That's a call to an ongoing renewal. And when we find that we are in need of more grace because we are still not what we ought to be, we don't need to be fearing. The people here who are in rebellion against God, they cried out to the Lord. The Lord had pity on them. We who are perhaps, well, far from perfect, realizing our flaws, crying out to the Lord who has loved us, we have no less reason to believe that he will hear us. But we must be firm that we will be what we want others to be. We will be at first even if nobody else is. Second, I would say we need to refocus on God. That generation says they didn't know God. There's a couple of different dimensions that we understand that. In other words, they really didn't know much about God, and they, they didn't have a relationship with God. The mindset seemed to be, we know there is a God. That's sufficient for us. They, we know they knew there was a God, because whenever they were in trouble, they would cry out to the God. And so they knew he was there. They just didn't know anything about him. They were satisfied. They were contented in relatively minimal understanding of what God is. They would leave it to the professionals to have any deep theological understanding. One of Camper's professors in seminary, J.I. Packer, in his classic, contemporary classic book, Knowing God, makes a statement that continually resonates with me, both convicting and encouraging. Because in that book, what Packer says, he says, those who know God have great thoughts about God. In other words, those who really know God are not contented to simply know there is a God out there and know a few tidbits and, and leave it that they are hungering for more understanding, a deeper understanding of who this God is. They want to know more about him and constantly are digging, studying the scriptures to see what God has revealed about himself, reading uh, theology in a proper sense, the study of God, to, uh, to gain from the teaching of those who have gone before and have understood who God was. And they don't see it as a discipline or an academic duty that we just must do. And I don't recall where I read this phrase, so I'm claiming it as my own. But they, they would study the scriptures and study theology not as a textbook or a chore, but as a man who is in love studies the photo of the object of his affections. 
looking at every detail, seeing if there would be some way, something that he had not noticed before, or rejoicing in things that he had noticed before, growing more and more in love, at the same time realizing it's just a photo, it's not the real thing, but that is a tool to help me grow in intimacy and closeness and appreciation of that which is real. Just like the scripture is the word of God, God's voice is speaking, but it is not the person of God. But it helps us to understand who God is so that as we relate to him, whether it is in prayer or in worship or through the Lord's table or even listening for his voice when we are reading the word, where he who is spirit promised that he is mystically present but really present, we are able to hear when we know more about him. So the question is, what does this text tell us about God? I would suggest to you it tells us that our God is amazingly gracious. Now that may be at first glance a little shocking because, I mean, if, if you look at this and look at verse 15, wherever they marched, the Lord of the hand was against them and, the Lord, and brought them harm as it doesn't sound particularly gracious act. But I would tell you that there was method in what may appear to be God's being mad. God's purpose there, as it is in our lives, is to call the people back to himself. We see it very clearly in verses 22 and 23. He left the people there in verse 21 in order to test Israel by them. Now the question we need to ask is who was the test for? Now Israel was the one being tested, but who was the test for? Was the test for God? You know, I'm not sure how much these people love me, so I'm going to step back and see what they do when I'm not there. And if they behave, then I know they love me. And if they don't, God's sitting in heaven with his little daisy. They love me, they love me not. It's, that's not what's going on here. God is in total control. He knows their hearts better than they know their hearts themselves. God knows our hearts better than we know our own hearts. And he knew their hearts were far from him. But his love never ended. And so the purpose of allowing these nations to bring difficulties upon his people, the people who he loved, was for an objective standard that they would be able to recognize. Are we walking with God or are we not? Where or what are we trusting in? How are we doing? And so as the nations come, it squeezed the pressure, caused them to look at themselves and say, what are we doing? And when they finally had squeezed enough, the people would cry out in their groanings and over and over and over we see the Lord says, it says he had pity on them. In other words, he cared. He had compassion. He loved them. The whole test, the whole point of all of this was to call these wayward, undeserving people back to himself. That's why I say he's gracious. It was a litmus test for the people, an objective standard. God's grace led them to repentance. In their repentance, they found grace all more abundant. They found God who, who loved them. Hebrews tells us the same thing, that if we're not ever experiencing any kind of difficulty, hardship, or discipline, then we probably ought to look about our, whether or not God is our Father, because those God loves, He corrects. God is incredibly gracious, and, it's, and, and God goes further. God, for these people, He raised up judges to deliver them, to protect them. In those judges, we see a beautiful picture of the ultimate expression of God's graciousness because the gospel is seen in that very thing. I mean, think about it for a moment. So the Lord raised up judges for who? For an undeserving, rebellious people. 
Scripture tells us that he saved them from the hands of their enemies because of the judge. Not because there was a judge and now they were following the rules, but God was gracious to them because of the judge, just as God is gracious to us because of our judge, Jesus Christ, whom he has provided and whom these judges were a pale shadow. The Lord was moved to pity. He only pity those that he cared about. All of these are expressions of the good news of our gracious God and what he has given to us, a foreshadowing of Christ, a promise, a deposit of what is there for us. We are reminded, as Jesus reminded us, that our call is to love the Lord with all of our heart, our mind, and our strength. In other words, our hearts go out. Our minds are those who know God, know about God, not just satisfied with a little bit of understanding. Our strength actually leads us to our last thing, is we need to be a people who are committed to personal renewal, personal holiness. Be a people who are refocused on God. And we need to be a people who are who keep on mission. So the mission God gave to his people is to establish the kingdom of God here on earth and throughout the earth. God never said, you know what, I think it'd be nice if somebody would develop me a little cul-de-sac where I can come and visit every once in a while. God said, the whole earth is mine. And I'm reclaiming the whole earth. And I'm going to reclaim it through you. Your purpose, I'm putting you where you are so that the nations will come to you, people will repent, and then you also will be scattered around and we, we see that as God scattered them, even in their discipline, he continued in his love, continued to use his people, scattered his people around and says, I put you where I put you in order that you might be a, rede- a redeeming blessing to the community. And the same is true for the people that are following this side of the cross. The purpose of the kingdom of, of God for his people is to advance his kingdom. But in order to do that, we must be a people who get involved and engage the culture that is around us rather than increasingly isolating ourselves into a cul-de-sac. Jesus told Peter, upon you, I believe upon the profession of faith that he made, but we'll get into that theological issue. We'll just use his words and take them for his words right now. Upon this rock, uh, I will build my kingdom. But then he didn't say, Peter, when you're going to become the governor, you're going to replace Rome, and you're going to take charge, and you'll have positions of of prestige. He said, and here's what's going to happen, Peter. You're going to suffer, and you're going to die. That's how I'm going to build my kingdom. The call to you and to me is similar. If there's going to be a change, a reversal of what we see now in our culture, it's going to be because God has a people who are willing to die. Perhaps those sometimes willingly, I mean literally, and sometimes simply just to die to ourselves. I'm not excited about being one who signs up for the literal dying thing for things. So I, if you're uncomfortable with that, I'm right there with you. I had a seminary professor who was a tremendous missionary, but he said my philosophy was always run, run, run away. It's to live long enough to preach another day. And I thought, there's words of wisdom. I think I'll stick with that one. But I do hope that if God calls me to something other, uh, to the different, that he will give me the grace and that I will have the courage to do what God calls me to do. But more and universally, we are all called, rather than to seek our own good and, and, and first and foremost, but to seek the glory of the Lord, to lay down our lives and privileges in order that the kingdom would be established and demonstrated. 
and we lay it down by engaging people in places that may be uncomfortable. Among the poor, the outcast, and those who hate us. We are to go, plant the gospel, and plant churches. But I am afraid and I am ashamed that the evangelical culture, if you were to ask the typical non-believer around us, and maybe some who are here with us, what do evangelical Christians stand for? We are far more known for what we protest than what we plant. They know what we're against, but they neither hear nor see what we live for. But there are some beautiful examples of people who are doing exactly what needs to be done, people who are not better than you. In fact, some who have come from here. A good friend of mine, his name is Rusty Whitener, used to go to church here, met his wife here. He was pastored for a number of years, and he left his pastorate and became a writer. He has a book that has now been turned to a movie, which will soon be released. A couple of years ago, there were some Hollywood producers who, Rusty tells me, there's a bunch of conservative people, including godly people out in Hollywood, who want capable writers to come that will write with depth and substance, and the message that will be proclaimed would be redemptive value without being so sugary, sweet Christianese that we see that it makes you feel like a diabetic to watch the movie. Rusty having that gift, he was toyed with that, still toying with the possibility of going, and he would be salt and light in Hollywood. And then through his writing and through movies that come out, that would be whoever, he's, whoever he reaches. A friend of mine's close friends of ours who live in Pittsburgh, who was an elder in the church that we served there, he was a very high-powered attorney in Pittsburgh, lived in a nice half-million-dollar house. Half-million-dollar houses are nice here in Pittsburgh. They're really nice. On top of that, he has a house at Sandbridge, which he's trying to sell right now, which is probably not a good time to mention that, in case you're looking for one, since I'm talking about sacrifice here. Um, but if you want to buy it and let us use that, no. Um, that's he's unloading that. He sold his half-million-dollar house, and he and his wife moved into a house in a decaying community in Pittsburgh, very near their church. They paid $15,000 for the house. They did spend another twenty to up it, to fix it up, and they're living in a decaying community. He's bringing his resources, not only of money, but even more so his presence, his wisdom, his godliness, and he's engaging the teenagers in that community where they're hanging out at his house, coming to him no matter what the situation is, and he is having a tremendous impact on that community simply because he gave up the comfort of his plush suburban neighborhood and moved into the city. Now, should you all do that? Probably not. I don't know who's called to do that. I say that's an extraordinary situation, but not an unusual one. But each of you is called to do something. There's a sphere of passion that you have in your life where you're to engage the culture because the advancement of the kingdom is not only a geographical, it's a sphere issue. Every aspect of our culture needs to be impacted by people who live the gospel so that they can share the gospel with the people who are part of it. In our own church, we have a great opportunity if we come alongside Robin in the City Arts Cafe to engage a part of this culture, culture in this community that really has been endowed by God, even whether people that are engaged in the community know it or not, and just come alongside and love a people who may or may not know the Lord and celebrate what they're doing. There is no lack of opportunity. The question is whether there's a lack of willingness. But the command is clear. We are a people who are called to be influence of, of our culture regardless of the circumstances that are going on around us. We are no longer the majority voice. That doesn't enable call us to then withdraw 
It means we need to think about whether we have truly been faithful, repent of our lack of faithfulness, and engage nevertheless, realizing the power of God that has brought to life people from death in China with no missionaries to speak of, can certainly turn around our country, our culture, and make us a people of God. If, if we're willing to be obedient and cling to the gospel. What will change our culture is a people who understand who God is and who learn to follow and obey Jesus and therefore become like him, declaring the message that Jesus has taken upon himself all of the dysfunction, all of the brokenness, all of the hurts, and all of the sin for those who will turn from it, turn to him, and rest in him. May God make us those people. Let me pray. Father, as we consider your word today, I do pray that you would give us grace to continue to grow in you and to be fruitful vessels in this community. Lord, for those who need clarity, I pray that you would show them where they are to serve. For those who need courage, Lord, remind them of your love and your promise. For us all, Lord, help us to understand your love, that we may not only love you, but love what you love. Use us, we pray, in the name of Christ. Amen.